From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. So my name is Elizabeth Badger. I am from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. I've been working on my dissertation, which has been investigating some of the roots of the earlier history of video games. And particularly, it's about uh, the effects of the commodification of games. So uh, my trips to the stacks has been partly, you know, to explore what's there and partly because um, video game archives uh, are still, in many respects, scattered to the four winds in a way that a lot of other archives are not because uh, video games are still very underrepresented within academic historian cultures. So, for example, you have the Strong, which has really good collections, but then you can find all sorts of little things kind of scattered around uh, part of which I've only just started to scratch the surface of here at the Hagley. We, we kind of think of games as just being this sort of thing that we buy and then we're supposed to consume and, you know, call it a day. But if you look at the, the earlier history of games, you realize uh, it was a bit more of a communal atmosphere. Uh, a lot of it, you know, was used to, like, look, teach yourself how to program. It was used as a way to uh, demonstrate new technologies. And then as people began to realize that there was money to be made off this whole software shtick in general, and not just games, you start getting this crackdown uh, as a result of... Um, people suddenly getting really into things like copyright and stuff like that. So by the time you get to the middle of the 80s, uh, you have this completely different atmosphere where games are meant to be bought and sold, and anybody who goes outside of that mold is uh, deemed a hacker or a pirate. So I had a summer internship last year. And so part of what that work was was kind of trying to redirect and... So, you know, I was talking with people like Lane Nooney at, you know, New York University and the like. And one of the things they were saying is, you know, my original idea was a little bit too set in the present. So, and what uh, Nooney in particular commented on is that our understanding of the past of games is still so um, nebulous that it wouldn't hurt to try to kind of build up that base. Um, and so I went back and I sort of looked at what I was looking at. And one of the things I began to notice, you know, while I was working at the IEEE, there were two things in particular, actually, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll note. Uh, one was that if you look at, like, the history of lawsuits that uh, Magnavox leveled against a lot of different companies uh, back in the day, uh, Magnavox, for those who don't know, were the uh, original uh, console sellers. They sold the Odyssey uh, and uh, Bayer and Magnavox et al. were the ones who had the patent on their home console. And boy, howdy, were they willing to um, sue the pants off of anybody who violated that patent. But the thing is, is that if you looked at most of these patent lawsuits, they were always about one particular section. It was almost never about like the actual schematical part. It was about 
what I would basically call the electronic equivalent of patenting the act of an object flying at a stick uh, and then changing directions as a result of uh, it connecting with said stick. Which, which is essentially what it is. Like The idea is that a non-player-controlled object hits a player-controlled object and changes direction. Which, at the time, you know, you could see that as like, well, if you only think of it in terms of Pong, okay, that's pretty straightforward. But if you think about it more vaguely, it describes 90% of video game interactions. And that's kind of an odd thing to patent. Because most of the time when you're patenting, you're patenting a specific like physical uh, like result of something. But by putting a patent on this, they suddenly made this incredibly easy to violate patent. And I don't think you can really blame Bayer because he was very much a, um, a I'm, I'm an inventor, I protect all of my patent stuff. You know, he was very in that electrical engineering logic, but that's the first thing that really caught my attention because it is this really unusual thing. And this is in conjunction with the other thing that I noticed, which was flipping through a lot of hobbyist magazines, uh, in particular, um, pop see, I want to say it was uh, Popular Electronics, or um, it was one of the old hobbyist magazines. And there's a thing where uh, if you look at the history of hobbyists, they're generally protected in their hobbies. You know, they're not, they can't get sued for creating these hobbies. But there is a... Um, Notice in the magazine before the one where they print a schematic for making your own Pong machine, where they admit that they blinked for a second, where they said that part of it, you know, it was FCC regulations, blah, blah, blah. But the other thing was because Activision was going around suing these people. And so that gave me pause because it's not often that you would see a hobbyist publication, you know, and especially one as illustrious as the one that introduced the original you know, hobbyist microcomputer to the world, blink uh, as a result of legal uh, issues. And so that's what I started to uh, shift my, that's why I started to shift my dissertation towards this idea that maybe there was a bit more of a conflict and a bit more turmoil in this early history uh, transitioning games into uh, a sellable product than I realized. So, that's where the Hagley suddenly came back into perspective. Now, the Hagley was originally one of the things that first pointed me in this direction because uh, a couple of their employees at RCA, uh, in, as part of the David Sarnoff collection, uh, were consults on uh, some of these lawsuits. Um, in particular, Bernard Lechner was uh, involved in a lawsuit which we should not still have documentation for, as far as I can tell. It must have settled out of court. You can't find any reference to it on the internet. But apparently Sega uh, was one of the corporations that had been sued by Magnavox for the violation of this patent. And Lechner had been pulled in to consult on this, uh, especially since he had been, as it turns out, he had been pulled in to, uh, as a witness slash, uh, you know, person, you know, to talk to on one of the first lawsuits that occurred. And so uh, we went back and we looked at this and, you know, while I was at, you know, while I was at the IEEE, uh, Alex Magoon, who is, you know, in fact, the guy who helped pull this collection together, commented, oh, you should look at this uh, Joseph Weisbecker, that figure. Um, 
Now, uh, so I'll get now, you know, now that we've finally got to this point, you know, I'm going, you know, I can finally explain who, you know, who this person is that I've been spending the past few weeks looking at. Um, so Joseph Weisbecker, he was one of the engineers in the David Sarnoff collection, uh, in the David Sarnoff uh, research labs. And his central projects mostly uh, revolved around a lot of these microcomputer projects that RCA ultimately failed to really uh, break into the market with. Uh, but it turns out he's a lot more of an interesting figure than you would realize because a lot of his microcomputer work uh, actually focuses around games. So it's sort of like, you know, you think you don't think of RCA as games, and you know, if you look up the their entry for the Studio Two, which is like their one console, it's sort of like it came in, it went out, you know, nobody cared, etc. But it, it's really fascinating because if you look at Weisbecker himself, uh, he was very enthusiastic about this project, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that he was enthusiastic about games in general. And as I read more through the Weisbecker stuff, and I read you know, kind of the way he wrote about things, you know, I knew, I knew from talking to Alex that he was a hobbyist at heart and his, a lot of his projects were aimed at hobbyists, but the more you read about it, the more you notice something that's, that he talks about in a lot of, like, what he writes in, like, his manuals and stuff like that, that engineers don't generally discuss in, at all, and that's, it's okay to have fun with computers, mm -hmm. and that's, the uh, big arc that I hit upon while looking through the Weisbecker is we when we talk about the history of engineering uh, and the history of software programming, we tend to talk about it in terms of the improvements in productivity. If we talk about hobbyists, we talk about them, you know, at the very beginning, but nobody cares about them anymore because then they learned how to make, you know, like make computers and, you know, then they can make them actually do important things, quote unquote. But like, if you look at like, the earliest history, you know, you think about like why people get into engineering, you know, and who, who are the, you know, some of the best engineers, they usually got into it because they just flippin' liked engineering. <laughs> you know, and so you have like Weisbecker, for example, and you know, yeah, he's doing all the stuff for RCA, but he's doing all of these side projects where he invents games and then he sells them to different toy companies. Uh, he really gets into the computer scene and starts creating all, like, he makes books, which to kind of help simplify, you know, explaining how uh, computers work. He makes educational tools with the secondary idea of teaching kids how to program. He makes, um, he even makes kids' books. There's actually a couple of kids' books. And he makes uh, all sorts of things, which highlight the, he actually had a really holistic idea of how a computer, uh, you know, can can work for a human being. Uh, so uh, one of the things I found, one of the last few things I found that was really indicative indicative of this mentality was that um, there's this little this is one document that he had down uh, that he had printed out, and it was about like home computers, you know, because at the there's this transitional period where they go from hobbyist computer to home computer and eventually to personal computing. But they're kind of talking about it. And at one point, uh, the guy, notice most, for the most part, this document is not marked up. 
But there's this one point where the document says that the base of analysis for how we should be considering this market for computers is what computers, uh, the functions in which a computer can accomplish. And this is the only time where Weisbecker makes a point because he underlines it and then writes in the margins wrong. Uh, the computer's base value should be uh, its uh, perceived value to the user. And so that's, you know, like, I, it's a huge difference there because, you know, they, you have that standard, oh, this is the tool, you know, and it's all productivity, et cetera. Whereas Weisbecker just sees it as, what does a human like and get out of a microcomputer? And this is really important, I think, because it highlights the difference between the way the hobbyists thought, which was that, you know, a computer, while it can be a tool to help you with your productivity, should first and foremost be something that, you know, should be whatever you get out of it. And this history that we essentially taught ourselves, you know, been taught, which is that, oh, computers didn't become important until people figured out how to make spreadsheets from it and so forth. And so that's what, you know, that's why Weisbecker is turned out to be unexpectedly important. But, you know, at the same time, you know, it, it's sort of unfortunate because if he'd been working, maybe if he had been working for anybody other than RCA, <laughs> he might have had more luck. But he was kind, he kind of had an old-fashioned idea where he wanted, he you know, he, he privileged job stability over, um, you know, like, Fancy. So he's like, he kept his, you know, he kept most of his microcomputer work with RCA, you know, taking advantage of this huge amount of money he could get from RCA doing this stuff, you know, and, you know, he, while he had some side ventures, it certainly wasn't on the level of like, say, Atari, or, you know, like the early startups. But at the same time, uh, RCA kind of dra uh, dragged its feet about like any real of that sort of level of innovation. And so as a result, it just, it doesn't go anywhere. Like he, he is this guy, he's enthusiastic and he, and he is in some way successful about getting stuff to the hobbyists. But, you know, in the end, you know, RCA just does not break into the computer market, you know? And so for all of this guy's clear, you know, like promotion and idealism about what a computer could be for a person, RCA is just not the company in the end that can provide it. Um, but, you know, there are, you know, there's a bunch of hobby zines that you can find in the archives dedicated to uh, the computer that came after the Studio 2, which was still game-oriented, but it was called the uh, Cosmac VIP, uh, which was their attempt to try to make, you know, like a hobbyist slash home computer. Um, and, you know, and he did invent a language for some people still use, which is called Chip 8. Now, if you look at some of the books here, like Hagley, uh, chip 8 is nowhere to be found, but there are still people who use this language, um, and I've heard that sometimes it gets used in calculators as well. And so it's sort of like his legacy sort of lives on, uh, but, you know, in the end, you know, like I think kind of the combination of him being so tied to this hobbyist scene, uh, you know, and everything that that entails, and him being, um, you know, connected to RCA, uh, just kind of, you know, ended up so that any of the innovations he could have made and could have been, you know, put forward in the end just didn't manifest. So his primary period of time, like the primary period of time in which you start seeing things like the Cosmic Bip, you know, and all that, this is in the 70s. And this is really important when you think about it because it highlights how uh, the video game 
the rise of the video game acts in concordance with the rise of the microcomputer. So, I mean, he, he speaks in a lot, you know, like, you can kind of see he's sort of biding his time in his, you know, early times, because you're looking like, like his original writing about 8-bit processors, and they only there's only a few tells that he's got kind of an ulterior motive about why he's really getting into it at the time, which is things like, oh, we're trying to make a really low-cost computer, oh, you know, like, and such like that. And uh, it's only once he starts working in the games that you notice that every time he talks about computers, you know, like the computers are working on, games is always one of the first things he mentions. And um, it's obvious that he is this huge proponent of games, you know. Like, he actually, you know, like, he contacted his daughter to write a few games, you know, which, whether she likes it or not, you know, placed her on the one of the earliest female game programmers list. Um, I spoke with Joyce Weisbecker. She's not crazy about the uh, identifier. But, um, you know, and so you can see this sort of mentality, but at the same time, you know, because he was stuck in this corporate, you know, atmosphere, he was sort of restrained. And you kind of see in some of the things he wrote that he got that and it was frustrating. So, uh, you know, and so you can see he was sort of torn. And there's actually letters in which he, that he uh, is interacting with a uh, nonprofit group called the uh, People's Computer uh, Group, I believe. I can't remember the exact name of it. But, you know, where he's talking about how he believes in this idea of access for all for computers, even if he can't follow the same sort of like ultra, you know, like, like socialist leftist, so, socialist uh, libertarian mentality that a lot of those early, you know, those sort of computer groups went because, you know, he did, that wasn't the way he saw things, you know, were supposed to work. And as it turns out, you know, like it turns out you can't really do that much from within the corporation. But um, it's so obvious from like all of his writings that, you know, he really saw potential in all of this stuff. And there's one document that you actually find where, he, you know, and it's written in pencil, so I don't know whether he presented this or not, where he just flat out says, you should not feel ashamed to like games. And that was, that was really big for me because that's just, it highlights, it's like he doesn't care if you're young or you're old or whatever, you should like playing games. You should like having fun. And you know, that was this big, you know, recurring element, you know, in like, his, you know, like when he writes out manuals for uh, users of the computers and stuff like that, says there is no law against people having fun with computers. And that's why he's such a fascinating figure and why I think he deserves a certain, you know, like more recognition than I think he gets, even if he wasn't connected to like, say, you know, Atari or ColecoVision or whatever like that, because his... It's what he represents in terms of how he believes in things, which, you know, if you think about it purely from this professional engineering thing, seems really unusual. But if you look at it from the hobbyist perspective, you know, it, it meshes perfectly. A lot of what we're talking about, like I said, is this shift from, you know, this, you know, communal idea of games to this highly individualistic, um, like, you know, like individualistic version it prioritizes individual um, accomplishments uh, it's privatized um, and so in a way that is a cultural shift so you are in fact gaming culture you know and it just happens to be about you know focusing on video games in particular in this case i've been a gaming nerd since i was very young um, and yet you would think that would have caused me to kind of immediately go into gaming history and such like that but uh, 
as a woman who grew up playing games, you got a lot of stigma about it. And this is on top of the regular stigma that was already around games where, oh, they were just for kids. Oh, you know, you shouldn't have played too many of them, blah, blah, blah. And so I think in some ways I internalized that to a point where the idea of actually make, doing a profession off of games that wasn't programming related just didn't seem feasible. Um, originally, you know, believe it or not, you know, as a result, I was originally planning on being a food historian. Um, but... Uh, at first, I got convinced that maybe I should consider doing tech stuff when it, you know, well, I was in the middle of a digital history course, and my knowledge of like various trends of thinking on the internet and the like made people say, "Hey, you know, maybe you should talk about, you know, like electronics." And so I, I shifted into tech history, and then kind of uh, circled around for a while, where people, you know, like. Trying to stay, it's like, well, I'll just keep it on the history of computers, you know, that's obviously something important. There's this big historical question that's in computers about, like, the drop-off of women in 85. Uh, I mean, there was some relation, I think, to games because, you know, a lot of these games, you know, like, it starts happening around the time that Nintendo takes off, so clearly there's supposed to be this, but, you know, I'm not going to make it too specific. And, you know, just I was just getting a bunch of people from around me going, just talk about games. Just, just, just talk about games. <laughs> And so finally, yeah, and so we did focus on games. I did focus on games entirely, but I was still having a hard time finding, like, a vital narrative that needed to be talked about. So, uh, you know, so I was talking about gender because around the time that I was really starting to get into tech history was around the time um, something they called Gamergate kind of exploded. Basically, what happens is there's this guy and he's really mad at his game programmer ex-girlfriend. So he starts uh, talking uh, smack about her and they start creating the smear campaign based out of, I want to say, one of the anonymous image boards like 8chan or something like that. And uh, slowly it starts becoming this mass semi-movement, uh, which is uh, which they connected somewhat disingenuously to um, ethics in gaming journalism, which in reality all they meant was women in gaming, period, because their idea of bad ethics was entirely centered around whether or not a woman was sleeping with a reviewer in order to um, get a good review on a game. And so this kind of puttered out because there wasn't really a proper core, but a lot of the people who were involved in Gamergate would eventually drift into the alt-right. And so that became this really big thing, you know, and it's especially interesting because there was a lot of people like, oh, this is going to peter out, oh, nothing's going to come out of it. And I'm like, but if you had, if you were involved in online and gamer culture like I had, you, would, you knew that Gamergate wasn't like something that just came out of nowhere. It was something that had been percolating for a long time and just manifested in this particularly ugly situation because you knew about women getting harassed in um, online games you knew about like uh, this sort of attitude that of um, you know like whenever they use the term casuals when they talk about game players half the time they're talking about women um, and so originally that was what I was focusing on was uh, women in games um, until like you know, as I said, I spoke to Lane Nooney at NYU, and she said, it's a little more complicated than that. You know, and it is more complicated than that, because if you look at, like, say, Atari, for example, uh, on the one hand, you know, they had this very 70s loosey-goosey culture, but on the other hand, you have a lot of women uh, 
who won't speak out against it. They said, oh, you know, we, this is actually one of the best companies we ever worked for. So it, it, it does get complicated. And so we kind of, I, that's when I kind of went look back and I looked just like, what am I really looking at here? And that's how I eventually got onto this idea that it's, it was a commodification issue and that there was actually much more uh, conflict going on in terms of how games should be used and perceived than I realized. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.